I don't know if any of you saw this past week on the History Channel, they ran a three-night mini-series entitled The Sons of Liberty, and I usually don't recommend things uh, from the pulpit, but it is one that I would highly recommend uh, anyone that is interested in the founding of our nation, and unfortunately, so many of our students don't know basic history, much less the underlying stories of the founding of our nation, I would encourage you to get your students, your children to watch it with you. Uh, this story was a little different of how our nation was formed. It, it characterized and followed a lot of the lesser known events and people that were involved in the founding of our nation. It was very well done. It was uh, very entertaining. And it took a snapshot of what took place in Boston, Massachusetts from about 1750 up to the First Continental Congress. And what many people don't realize is that so much was taking place in Boston that had an impact on the rest of the colony. So much was capsulated in Boston that, that this series follows that. And it follows a character that we don't usually see in history stories. A character that kind of gets overshadowed by his far more his cousin John, uh, that character was Samuel Adams, and Samuel Adams is much more than the name of a beer. Uh, he was probably one of the most prominent founding fathers that we have. I believe, as, as a student of history, that without Samuel Adams, we would have never seen our nation come together the way it did. It was his passion, and it was his fire that ignited the Continental Congress and that first Continental Congress to push... For the freedoms that we celebrate, the freedoms that we take for granted today. And that series did a great job following Samuel Adams and how he allowed what was going on in Boston to be exemplified to the rest of the, the colonies as they met there to decide. You know, today, looking back at 200 and some odd years, 40-something years, it's easy for us to romanticize the founding of our nation. And we don't really realize the grit and the dirt and all that it took to come together. We don't really realize, especially students and younger people, uh, how close it came to not actually happening. How close it came to you and I remaining British subjects and subjects of the crown and how many things had to, to fit just perfectly for it to work out. You know, just the idea of bringing 13 very different colonies 13 colonies with their own motivations, their own groups of people. They were very different in their uh, cultures. They were very different in their outlooks. They were very different in what they were expecting out of a nation. But yet that first Continental Congress brought these 13 colonies together, all with their own interest, for one common goal. And it was that one common goal, that one common theme that rose up from Samuel Adams' voice and others that were following him that became the theme of our nation. And that theme was liberty. That theme was freedom. And that theme, that one common voice, is what bonded 13 different colonies to come together. Now, the miniseries did a great job of showing how difficult it was trying to pull all of these representatives from those colonies together to work together to have one voice. You see, they realized early on, and uh, Samuel Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock realized early on that if they didn't speak with one voice, they didn't speak with one purpose, they would never be heard. 
If they spoke as 13 different colonies, their message would never get out. So they recognized that for them to ever gain the freedoms that we celebrate today, the freedoms that we take for granted just by being here unmolested in worship, the freedom to gather on Sunday mornings, if they didn't speak with one voice, those freedoms would have never been established. As Benjamin Franklin told them at the Second Continental Congress, we must all hang together or surely we will hang separately. It was this idea of speaking with one voice, it was this concept that led Franklin and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson to come up with a motto for our first uh, country, for our nation to become one. It's the same motto that continues today on the great seal of the United States, it's on the seal of the President, it's on the seal of the Congress, and it's on the back of any coin that you may have. It's a Latin phrase that says, E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. You see, what they were trying to recognize is that although they were diverse, although uh, they all had different intentions and different motivations, and, and they all needed different things as different colonies and as different colonists, that they were all had the ability under the guise of freedom and liberty to come together as one. Out of the many comes the one. Now, that motto's been tested. It was tested less than 100 years later in our Civil War, and it remains to be tested today, and I believe it'll probably be tested into our future. But as long as we as a nation continue to declare those freedoms that were voiced in the Declaration of Independence, that were made into law through our Constitution, and speak, even though we have differing opinions, even though we we vote for different people, if we continue to remain one voice, where those freedoms are concerned, our nation will continue to strive. See, it was that same concept that Paul introduced to the church a couple of weeks ago in our study of Ephesians. This concept of the power of a diverse group of people coming together to speak with one voice. A diverse group of people coming together, overcoming their own wants or their own needs or or their own desires to speak as one to be united. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you, I implore you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, we know that means to live a life that balances with who Jesus Christ says you are. To stop living below who you are in Christ, but recognize who you are, embrace that, claim it, and walk it out. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he says this, make every effort, do everything you can to keep, to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's talking about the church. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And those seven things are called the glue that binds the church together. You see, what he was telling us is that the church, the universal church and the local church is united, not because we agree or we look alike or because we are in Blowing Rock or in Watauga County. We are united because of who we are in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ, God through Christ that establishes and creates the unity that the church is called to have. It's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. What binds us together is that each one of us this morning, if you are a child of the King, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. 
And that Holy Spirit speaks with one purpose and one voice. And when we get out of the way and let him move in us and speak to us and speak through us, we become united as God intended. We become a part of the body. He tells us in chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1 that all the barriers that this world uses to divide us have been destroyed. It's no longer about man or woman or free or slave or Greek or Jew or black or white. All of those things have been torn down and we now have one purpose. We now have one voice. We now have one mission and that's to share the love of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Now we do that all different ways, but it's all under the banner of that one purpose. Now he's speaking here to the universal church, which I don't know if the universal church, the church as a whole will ever see unity the way God's called us to because we've divided ourselves up so much and some have compromised the gospel and some have chased after different things, but he's also speaking to the local church. He's speaking to the churches that are around Ephesus. He's speaking to First Baptist Church of Blowing Rock. And you see what he tells us in those first six verses is your job and my job is not to create unity. He does that. Our job is to preserve and promote unity. To have one vision, to have one voice, to have one purpose. He is saying our job is e pluribus unum. Out of many comes one. And that's what Jesus is trying to help us understand that is inside of us and that we are called to. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't mean we're all going to agree. No family does. The, the founding fathers did. Matter of fact, it was nasty as those colonies came together and suppressed their own desires and wishes for the betterment of the whole. But it does define in this passage how we disagree. See, we're always going to disagree. We're always going to have different opinions. We're always going to have different thoughts. But what Jesus says is that as we move forward through our disagreements, we move forward united with one voice. Now, I went into this in depth a couple of weeks ago. And if you missed that message, and I talked about the church, and I talked about where the church has been and what the church has gone through and how we're moving forward. And if you missed that, go online to our podcast and catch up. But that is the whole idea behind unity. But you see, this is where the church differs from our democratic form of government. Because you see, while our democratic form of government created unity, we come from a divinely created unity that is divinely secured by the Holy Spirit. And our role in that unity is very clearly defined. Our role is to promote, to provide, to be here to preserve unity that is in the body told you a couple of weeks ago the divided church is always a dying church and that that truism always works see we must not in the body of christ allow our disagreements to lead and build to division and here's how that works once we agree as the body of Christ, once we voice our views, once we voice our opinion and the body of Christ decides to make a decision and hopefully that decision is spirit led and prayerfully thought out and prayerfully considered, our disagreements have to end. We all are entitled to what we think in our opinions, but you understand those opinions end at the cross. And what Paul was trying to help us understand is that at that point, our disagreements move forward and we are called to preserve unity through the body of peace. Practically speaking, another way of saying it is once the church is spoken as a body, we have to move forward as one. 
One voice and one purpose. That requires the characteristics that he laid out there. Humility. It requires gentleness. It requires putting God's kingdom and the unity of the body of Christ ahead of my will and my wants and my kingdom. Even putting it ahead of my opinions. And sometimes that requires spiritual humility. I'll tell you what that means. Let me give you that to you in a practical way. Sometimes the church and the body of Christ may follow what I suggested, may do what I want, and other times it may not. But regardless of what happens, in both cases, my responsibility coming out of that is to preserve and promote unity. There's no middle ground. If the church agrees with me, if the church disagrees with me, once the church makes a decision and begins to move, we speak as one voice. Because if we don't have one voice, it distorts who we are to our community. It distorts our message. It distorts the picture that I used a couple of weeks ago, the puzzle picture that we come together to make Christ. There is no middle ground. Either in your words, in your attitudes and actions, you are building up the body of Christ or you are tearing down the body of Christ. There is no neutral. And our role and our calling and our responsibility as Christians is to always build up the body. That doesn't just mean this body. That means other bodies. I may disagree with them theologically. I may disagree with them in how they do and what they do. But it is not my place to go and tell another body how they should operate. Someone says, what's your opinion of it? I don't have an opinion of it. I'm worried about what God is telling us to do. Worried about how God is building the unity of this body. Because you see, once God speaks and once we move forward, we have to move forward together. When uh, people come together in a church, after churches have made decisions, I hear people come and they'll ask me, Rusty, what do you think about what they did? Doesn't matter what I think about what they did anymore. You see, before they made the decision, I I can voice my opinion. I can talk. I I don't like this or I like this and I think we should do this or I don't think we should do that. But once the church decides as a body, we are going to do this, then my opinion doesn't matter anymore. Because at that point, my role and my responsibility is to build unity, to promote unity. And you see what Paul was trying to help us understand is that unity, speaking as one voice, is a place where God's power, it's a place where his blessings are released through the church. And without that power, without that unity, we will never see God do what he's calling us to. And without that kind of one voice, without that kind of one passion, without that kind of unity, churches are just going through the motions. You see, what you need to recognize, and I I tell this to people all the time that come to me for counseling, if you get to a place in the church that you're in that you can't work to preserve and promote the unity in that church and allow that church to speak with one body, then you might need to find another church. But before you go searching, let me give you a warning. You will not find a church that you agree with 100%. You won't find a church that's going to always do what you want to do and how you want to do it. Why? Because in any church, you're always going to have a varying differing opinions. And for us to come together as a body, it means humbly stepping back and seeking God's will over my will. You see, and before you, you decide to leave and point fingers at a church and say they just didn't listen or they didn't do what I wanted, maybe you need to examine your own heart. And see whether or not you are a part of the problem that was leading to the disunity in the body.
See, Paul was telling us that that's how important unity is. I, I hear people all the time that'll talk, and, and not just this church, other churches, that'll talk about something that the church decided and did five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 15 years ago. I say, well, I remember when the church did that, and I was against it then, and I still think it was a huge mistake. Listen, is that promoting the unity of the body? What that's showing me is that it's not hurting the church, it's hurting you. You're the one. How can you worship in a place unified in voice, unified in body, if you are still harboring things that you didn't let go from five and ten years ago? You see, we've got to learn to let go. We've got to learn to make promoting and preserving unity our priority. And that doesn't mean uh, silencing myself. That doesn't mean that I have to look like everybody else. Listen, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we all dress the same or I want you to all think the same or that you're supposed to check your brain at the door or you're supposed to just willfully follow what anybody says. It's not uniformity. Unity is coming together for something bigger than ourselves. It is seeking first his kingdom and all the other things will come behind. It is not worried about my rights and my will. And I hear people in church say this all the time, but I've got a right. You see, you understand that your rights, as as far as the kingdom of God goes, stopped at the cross when you declared that I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And we have so democratized the church that instead of seeking and praying for what God wants, instead of seeking and being on our knees, seeking the will of God, we hold our finger up to see what's popular or what's going to cause the least amount of problems or what's going to make us all try to get along. A fake unity is not unity. A divided church is always a dying church. And so Paul spends the first three chapters and then the first part of chapter 4 telling us that unity is that important because it is when we become unified that we accomplish more than we ever could on our own and we also receive more than we ever could on our own. You see, once we become unified and we recognize that we are the body and we remove the barriers that we have placed, all of a sudden the spirit flows and the power flows and God's presence flows. Unity is that big a deal. And now here, he is going to take a totally opposite tact. Because what Paul is saying as we enter into this next part is that while we are united, we are also still diverse. And that's where it goes against this idea of uniformity. That's where it goes this idea of, you know, God has this set of rules and it applies here and there and everywhere He is saying that while we are united, we remain diverse. And it's in our diversity that we find power. Now, let me just say this. The diversity of the church is not because of the color of our skin. We're not diverse because of our racial makeup. We're not diverse because we got people that live here or that come to church that live in Blowing Rock or Todd or Bethel or Watauga County or Caldwell County. That's not what makes us diverse. We're not diverse because some of you have college degrees or master's degrees or doctorate degrees and some of you work at some areas and some of you don't have any degrees. Some of you are high. That's not what makes us diverse, you see, because the Bible tells us and, and Paul just told us that all of those things, those labels that we put those have been destroyed you see what makes us diverse are the gifts that God has given us look what he says in verse 7 and and like I said he begins to make a turn here 
He says but, and that but is a, is a big but, and I don't like using that term, but it's a big but. So when you see a but that makes a transition, know that it's more than just a conjunction. He's not just adding it in. He is saying, in spite of all that, you see, he's just said, we are one voice and one Father and one Spirit. But in spite of all of that, because of all of that, each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Not word grace there is cherish. It's the same word that we use for grace, but also gifts. And here it's meaning gifts. He is saying by the same token, each one of us in the body of Christ, we are unified, we are united, we are one voice, but each of us has been given a gift by Christ as Christ sees fit. This is why it says, and then he goes into quote Psalm 68 and you understand this passage here, um, seven sounds real clear. Eight, nine, and ten get a little confusing. And a lot of people, a lot of pastors I know, kind of just brush by it. And, and so I want to just give you an overview. But, but the whole main point I want you to grab this morning is this idea of spiritual gifts. It's this idea that you and I have been given these gifts. And he's trying to build on that statement that Christ has given you a uniquely special gift. And now he's going to talk about where he comes from the authority of giving that gift. And so he, in verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led the captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, verse 8, a lot of people struggle with this because it's not a direct quotation of Psalm 68:18. It's not word for word. And people say, oh, well, then this is where the Bible contradicts itself. How in the world could Paul quote this passage and it not be word for word? Let me ask you this. How many times do you quote a passage and it's not word for word? Paul's in jail. He didn't have a copy laying there beside him. He's writing from prison and as he's reading and writing and the Holy Spirit's speaking through him, he thinks this is an exact perfect verse because Psalm 68 was a verse of triumph. It's called one of the triumph, victory translations, the victory passages, where they're talking about a king, a Jewish king that's come home from being victorious over his enemies. And it's a picture of him coming into the city of Jerusalem and all the captives that he's captured are behind him. And as he comes in, he begins to give gifts to his men that have served with him. So what Paul is saying is not only do you have a unique gift that is given by Christ, but Christ has the authority and the power to give those gifts. Also understand that Paul probably read from a different Old Testament than you and I read from. He probably read from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. What we have is the Hebrew translation. And this passage here is closely suited to what the Septuagint says. So don't get lost in all that. People say, you know, well, it doesn't say this and it does. It's not word for word. What matters is that Paul is trying to get across to you and I that Jesus has the authority because of the victory that he's won to give gifts and because of that, each one of you in this room that is a Christ follower has a very special gift this morning. And then he goes on here in verse 9 and 10, and this is where a lot of people get confused. All Paul is trying to do is to build on that argument to say, listen, the victory that Jesus won wasn't just like a, a Jewish king coming home. He didn't just win against the Amicalites or the Canaanites. When Jesus won a victory, he won a victory that extends as high as the heavens all the way to the depths of the earth. That's the point he's trying to make, and here's how he says it. What does he ascend mean except that he who also descended to the lower earthly regions, 
He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now people get stuck on that verse and they chase it all around and they miss the picture that he's trying to give here. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a passage that many of the early church fathers and early church leaders began to follow. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it indicates or it seems to imply that the three days between Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus went to hell and preached to the captives in hell. Peter implies that. It's not very clear in 1 Peter chapter 3, but that became a teaching in the early church. And a lot of people use this verse to proof text that verse to say, well, it says here he descended. So because it says here he descended, it must be talking about him going into hell in those three days and preaching. That's not what Paul's trying to say. We know because he doesn't say that and he doesn't say it anywhere else. So don't get lost in that idea and start chasing that rabbit. Understand the general theme is, is that Jesus Christ, when he won the victory over sin, when he won the victory over death, it reached all the way into the earth to those who are captives in the earth. And it reaches all the way to the heavens to those who have ascended to the throne. That Jesus' victory over death and sin was totally complete. You see, the main point he wants us to get this morning is that the church is diverse because every believer in this body has been given an incredible, unique, special gift to make the body one, to serve the body, to, to help us to understand, to release the ministry of the body. See, what I want you to get this morning more than anything else is that while we are united, we are also diverse. And it is in that diversity, it is because we are diverse that the power of our unity is so strong. It's in all of those separate gifts coming together for one purpose and one mission and one voice that the power of God is released through the church. That's how the church has survived for almost 2,500 years. That's how we've gone through all of the problems that we've gone through and still it survives. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is today? Do you know where more people are being converted than ever before? China. China outlawed Christianity. And for 50 years, Christians were not and have not been allowed to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ together. They weren't even allowed to have the Bible. But it was in that fertile soil where the diversity of the body of Christ, meeting in homes, came together, united for one purpose, that the Holy Spirit began to explode. You see, it was in that mode of persecution where they overcame their barriers to recognize that they were one body, that the churches began to bubble up. Why? Because that is the power of unity in Christ. See, Paul is wanting us to understand that, yes, you are uniquely gifted, but it is in that gift that you bring it to the body to make us one. When I was in junior high and high school not so far long ago not quite the dark ages uh, they used to have three tracks that they would have you study uh, three tracks that they would identify what classes you would take what uh, schedules you would take and and how you were preparing to get out of school and some of you may remember these they've changed it all now praise the lord and it's different uh, but they used to have the basic track and that's what a majority of students went on that was your basic classes that was basic english basic math it was on the grade level your sixth grade your studying sixth grade math and the second level 
They had what they called the honors program. And the honors program, if you were in it, it usually operated about a grade level ahead. It was, uh, you were more advanced. You were taking math that was a little more advanced. You were taking English that was more advanced. And, and in my school, in junior high and high school, they had the third program, which is the most horrible name for a program uh, if you are a kid. But it was called the gifted program. And the gifted kids were the ones that, that were, they were advanced college bound. You see, the honors program was college bound. But if you were gifted, then you were on a different track. And they were usually two or three years ahead. And we used to hate that term. I was in the honors more college bound program. And we hated when these students would come in. And, you know, they talk about being in the gifted program. And you're sitting around the cafeteria. And someone says, oh, what class are you in? And they say, oh, I don't have those classes because I'm gifted. Needless to say, I was pretty cruel to those gifted kids. It's crazy what a term will do to you. Until I got into eighth grade, and at the end of my eighth grade year, I uh, had a meeting with our counselor getting ready to go to high school. And my parents were in the meeting. We were sitting down. and You know, they had your life there before you and all the grades that you'd made. And the counselor began to explain to my parents as we planned out my classes. She said, well, you know, as we look at Rusty's grades and we look at all that he's progressed and we look at his test scores, we believe that as we move into high school, Rusty needs to be put in the gifted program. And then she added this. She said, matter of fact, as I look at it now, I think Rusty probably should have been in the gifted program all along. I was sitting there with my parents and I I thought, wait, what? What? I've been gifted all along and I didn't know it. All of this time I've been making fun of those gifted people and that was me. You know, I was wanting to teach. Do you get a shirt? You know, can I wear it back out? You know, gifted now. Um, And so they put me in the gifted program. I was now gifted. Now, at the end of my freshman year in high school, my dad relabeled the program I was in because he said I I was no longer gifted. I was now gifted and lazy. And so uh, that showed itself through my grades. But this idea of being gifted changed everything. It changed the way I looked at it. Well, guess what? Paul is telling you and I that as Christ followers, as those that have given their life to Jesus Christ, you are gifted. You have a unique, very special gift that goes in line with your personality and your talents and your heart and your desires. And it works together to make you who God is calling you to be. But you have a gift, it says, that was apportioned by Christ. You know what that means? That means he picked it out just for you and gives you just enough that you need. So you need to recognize that you're gifted. So many of us don't understand that. So many of us talk about all the things that we don't have. All of the things that we wish we had. And you have an incredible gift that's meant to help you become who God has called you to be. You see, and the key to all of this, and I'm not going to get into the list of what the gifts are and talk about how you know what your gift is. We'll talk some about that next week. But I want you to begin to embrace that you are gifted because when you begin to recognize that, you begin to understand that it is when you begin to use your gift that you become fulfilled in who Christ is calling you to. 
You see, it's when we all begin to use our diverse gifts, whether it's teaching or or hospitality or service, when you begin to use those gifts for the body of Christ, that is when we come together with one voice and we become the church that Jesus died for. The church that Jesus is coming back for. When we become the hands and feet, when our voice matches up with our actions, when we are united in the body, that is when the power of God is released in the community. That is when you begin to be fulfilled as a Christian. You see, for far too long in the church, we've had needs, and instead of praying for those that are gifted to fill those needs, we just fill spots. We need three people here and two people to do this and a person to do this, and we try to fit it all together. Listen, someone who is gifted doing what they're called to do, using their gifts, can accomplish way more than anyone ever filling a spot. You see, what I want to do is get to a place as the body of Christ where you can be fulfilled. You see, our job as a church is to help you understand the opportunities, to create opportunities, to train you, to lead you, to fulfill what God has called you to. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I run the race to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. You see, it's when all of a sudden you begin to do what God has gifted you to do that you are rewarded. Nobody may ever see it. It may never get put on a bulletin or it may never be on a stage, but you will feel a sense of fulfillment like never before. But it starts with you understanding that you have a gift, that you have something special that no one else around you has. Let me say this, and I'm almost done. When God brings you to a specific church, it's not because you like the preacher. It's not because the music's good or a program's good. God brings you to the body because that body has a need that your giftedness fills. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said, how do you know that this was the church for you or that's the church? You just know because when you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, there's just a peace that overwhelms you. You know. That peace comes from knowing that this is the place that I can use my gifts. See, God is calling some of you to step out, to step up to discover what that gift is. And as we move together united, we are diverse in our giftedness. To close, let me give you an illustration that comes from my gifted high school history class. When our nation was formed, what made us a nation was that those 13 diverse colonies didn't try to become like each other. They didn't try to replicate what the others did. Massachusetts didn't try to become South Carolina and Rhode Island didn't want to become Pennsylvania or Virginia. They all recognized their strength and their weaknesses. And they recognized that when they put their strength and weaknesses together, it created something bigger than they could ever imagine on their own. While that experiment has been rocky and it's going to continue to be rocky, that unity and that vision and that giving of themselves has created a nation that's far greater than our founding fathers ever could have imagined when they came up with that Latin motto, E Pluribus Unum. 
But you see, today, even when we disagree politically, even when we disagree regionally, we recognize that out of the many comes the one. That's the body of Christ. This morning, we recognize that we are one with Christ and one with one another. E pluribus unum. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the power of your word. And Father, we just ask this morning that, God, you would help us to understand that we've been given a gift, that we've been given something special that has been used and given to us so that we might glorify the body of Christ, that we might glorify you in the body of Christ. God, I just ask that each one of us right now would examine ourselves. How are we using our gifts? How are we using our gifts to promote the unity of the body? How are we using our gifts to serve? Are we sitting back waiting for someone to ask? Sitting back waiting for someone to to come and beg? Or, Or have we jumped in searching for our place? God, search our hearts. Are we continuing to promote unity and preserve unity? Are we tearing down? God, you are doing something unique in this body. I I don't know what it is. I don't know where we're going months from now. I just know where we are today. And that, God, you are calling us to a place of power, a place of unity. And that unity will only happen when we each come giving of ourselves for your purpose, for your kingdom, for your glory. God, we worship you. Work in our hearts now as we respond to your call. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we worship?